1: Welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A decade of low interest rates encouraged people to put a lot of faith in risky assets, from Bitcoin to junk bonds. And with all this hype came a speculation fueled bubble in the market. But now that big bubble has popped. Or has it? European streets once buzzed with petite cars such as the Mini, the Beetle and the Fiat 500. Well, prepare to see fewer of them. It seems that people on the continent are falling out of love with their teeny weeny cars.
2: But first...
1: Over the weekend, wildfires raged in Spain's Canary Islands and in Croatia. In the Greek capital of Athens, the Acropolis was closed as temperatures rose into the high 30s, with a number of tourists sent to hospital showing signs of heat exposure.
0: Well, the heat is very intense, and um, there's a lot of people. Uh, I hope, hopefully, no one will uh, suffer any illness, but uh, it was very intense. Heat, yeah.
1: 16 Italian cities were on red alert over the searing heat. The current record for the highest temperature ever reached in Europe, 48.8 degrees Celsius, was set in Sicily in 2021. Forecasters are predicting that this week, it may be exceeded. Meanwhile, in America, there's a similar pattern emerging.
3: Forecasters expect parts of California and Arizona to reach all-time high temperatures. The National Weather Service says roughly 111 million people are under heat advisories. Those alerts span roughly 2,000 miles from Oregon to Louisiana.
1: California's Death Valley, one of the world's hottest places, is predicted to hit 54 degrees Celsius, approaching the highest temperature ever recorded on Earth. Phoenix, over in Arizona, recorded 48 degrees Celsius on Saturday. Our American West Coast correspondent Erin Braun went to see how the city is coping with the heat.
4: It's about 2 p.m. here on a Sunday afternoon, and it's about 44 degrees Celsius, which is something like 111 degrees Fahrenheit. This has been the norm lately. For more than two weeks straight, the daily high temperatures in Phoenix have exceeded 110 degrees Fahrenheit or about 43 degrees Celsius. Since it's 2 p.m., the sun is pretty much directly overhead and there's not a lot of trees in downtown Phoenix. So there's not a lot of shade right now, but there aren't a lot of people outside at all. It's pretty much a ghost town. You might be able to hear some music playing from bars nearby, but they're dead empty. Hopefully everyone's just at home enjoying (laughs) air conditioning or one of the cooling centers that the city has opened up. Most of the people who died from extreme heat in Phoenix last year were homeless or lived in mobile homes. So local governments have really been trying to up their outreach campaigns. And forecasters think that the city is probably gonna beat an 18-day record that was set back in 1974 so it's really the longevity of this heat wave that is really troubling.
3: So in recent weeks, and particularly the last seven days, you have seen simultaneous heat waves across huge parts of America, Asia and Europe. About one third of the American population is currently under heat advisories from the National Weather Service.
1: Rachel Dobbs writes about climate for The Economist.
3: Japan and much of China have seen incredibly high record temperatures. Shanjing province in China, yesterday they recorded an unofficial temperature of 52.2 degrees Celsius, which if it is verified is both the hottest temperature in the northern latitude above 40 degrees and also is the hottest temperature ever recorded in China and is about 1.7 degrees above the previous record. And Europe, particularly around the Mediterranean, is a currently breaking temperature records, and B, the European Space Agency says that this week may be the hottest ever recorded on the continent.
1: Wow. And why are we seeing these record temperatures? I'm guessing it's down to climate change. It almost definitely
3: is down to climate change, although it is too soon currently to say that this specific event is necessarily attributable to global warming. But it certainly seems that way. A previous heatwave in April around the Mediterranean was found pretty quickly to be made 100 times more likely by the build-up of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And what we do know is that as global temperatures rise, they're currently about 1.1 degree above pre-industrial levels, that pushes the envelope in which the weather happens. So that means that a smaller heatwave has now been made more extreme. Why it's happening simultaneously all around the world, particularly this
1: week, not quite sure yet. Okay, and you mentioned that it's tricky to attribute any specific weather event directly to climate change. So could there be other causes at play? It's possible to attribute direct events, just to say, but not always
3: immediately. There are likely other factors in play here. One of them is El Nino, which is a weather pattern that the world has just entered, which tends to push up temperatures in some areas. We've actually had several years in the opposite weather phenomenon, which is La Niña, which tends to suppress temperatures. So that will probably be driving up bits of heat. But the real effects of El Niño are not expected to be seen until later in this year. So we can't attribute what's going on now to that entirely either.
1: And of course, heat waves like this are very uncomfortable while they last. I mean, you mentioned temperatures in the high 40s. But what are the impacts on human health more broadly? Heatwaves
3: are one of the weather impacts with the most direct effect on human health and are actually responsible for about 8% of weather-related deaths. And they damage human health in various different ways. The most immediate or obvious is through things like heatstroke or really bad dehydration. That's particularly dangerous for people who are vulnerable or old. Quite a recent study estimated that as many as 61,000 people may have died from sweltering heat across Europe last summer, which notably is not going to be as hot as the temperatures we see this summer. But heat waves also can have a long-ranging impact. It can damage your heart, it can damage your kidneys, and there's increasing evidence that heat waves also have an impact on mental health as well as physical health.
1: And Rachel, we began by talking about air temperatures, but we're seeing the oceans getting warmer too, right? Yes, global sea surface temperatures have been at uh, a
3: particular record high since April in the North Atlantic, which does have an effect on the current heat waves. Not having a cool ocean means that cooler air cannot flow into some of the areas in the Mediterranean, for example, which is contributing to why they are so excruciatingly hot. And you're seeing high water temperatures in other places as well. In the oceans around Florida and the Gulf of Mexico, they've recorded temperatures in the mid 30 degrees Celsius range, which is about the temperature of human blood and is high enough to start damaging the coral reefs and will cause a big threat to marine life. You'll probably see quite big fish die-offs.
1: Obviously, we've spent most of this talking about heat waves, but you mentioned that climate change makes other extremes more likely as well.
3: Yes, and something that we are actually seeing this week is this extraordinary confluence of loads of different extreme weather happening simultaneously. So in addition to the heat waves, you have seen torrential early monsoon rains in India. Delhi recorded its highest day of rainfall in over 40 years. Villages in the north of the country have been submerged after rivers burst their banks. Flooding and landslides after torrential rains in South Korea have triggered an ongoing search and rescue effort over the weekend. At least 35 people have died in that at this point. Just as the heat is not just confined to America, this is not just confined to Asia. The American state of Vermont has declared a disaster after being hit by unprecedented storms. People have died in flooding in Pennsylvania. All of these things seem to be happening simultaneously this July. I think what I find really unsettling is that... While we know that weather events do not repeat exactly year to year, we can make a pretty good guess that the kind of extreme weather that we are seeing this July is going to get increasingly common and every year is going to be worse or more dangerous or bring about more suffering than the one before broadly, probably across the rest of my life as global temperatures rise. But exactly how bad it gets is going to be dependent on how well the world can cut greenhouse gas emissions and mitigate global warming getting significantly higher by the end of the century, and also on the extent to which the world can figure out how to adapt to climate change, particularly in poor countries, which overall will be the ones most affected.
1: Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
2: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: 2022 was a difficult year for investors.
0: And the S&P at this level below 38.12 will post a 20% drop for the whole year. The worst year since 2008 for all the major averages, snapping a three.
1: And this year didn't start off much better.
5: Yeah, we're now looking at tech job losses at up over 100,000 so far uh, from the industry.
1: Heavy job losses in tech, a narrowly averted crisis after the Silicon Valley bank crash, and continued interest rate hikes should have broken the growth model of previous years. But instead, the values of stocks and other would-be investments are, somehow, showing stubborn signs of resilience, leaving many scratching their heads as to whether there is an asset bubble or not.
5: So, for a lot of investors, last year felt like a bit of a reckoning.
1: Josh Roberts is a finance correspondent for The Economist.
5: A decade of low interest rates and floods of new money from central banks had ended, and markets were crashing across the board. And that might have been painful for investors, but it also seemed to make sense. Asset prices had been rising relentlessly for years in stocks, in bonds, in housing, in cryptocurrencies, you name it. So much so that people started to talk about the everything bubble, and they blamed this era of cheap money for inflating it. Now, even though interest rates have risen very sharply indeed over the last 18 months – at the fastest pace since the 1980s, in fact, and despite last year's market crash, it looks like big parts of the everything bubble are back.
1: Okay, tell us what you mean by this bubble.
5: Well, broadly, the price of risky assets have just proved astonishingly resilient in the face of lots of terrible news. So over the last 18 months, we've had the return of high inflation, rising interest rates, snarled up supply chains, war in Europe, and the threat of recession across a lot of the world. And yet over the past six months, the prices of risky assets have been motoring up. Stock markets in spite of last year's crash are now back within striking distance of the all-time highs they set in late 2021. uh, And junk bonds aren't too far off either. Junk bonds? Josh, what are those? So junk bonds are the riskiest kind of bond, or borrowing by companies with the lowest credit rating. And they suffered big losses last year, like stock markets. In America, for example, junk bonds lost about 15% in aggregate. But they've since recovered about half of those losses. And actually, in Europe, they've had the same kind of recovery. Elsewhere, there was a long-awaited housing slump, for example. But that's now showing signs of petering out, and global prices have fallen only 3%. And that's after a long boom where house prices rose at their fastest rate in history. And even in the most speculative assets, like Bitcoin, Bitcoin looks sort of okay now. If you bought Bitcoin before the mania that started in 2021 and you held on to it, you're now back to sitting on a profit.
1: Okay, so you've mentioned a lot of things that could have crashed markets but didn't quite. Is there anything else on the horizon?
5: Well, one candidate a lot of people in the market worry about is liquidity, and roughly that means the amount of cash that's sloshing around the financial system. And it's gradually being drained out of it at the moment. So the two big sources of that are the Federal Reserve and America's Treasury Department. Now, through what it calls quantitative tightening, or reducing its portfolio of bonds – The Fed is sucking out $95 billion a month, and it does that by allowing some of the treasuries it owns to mature without reinvesting the proceeds. And America's Treasury Department, by one estimate, needs to sell a trillion dollars of new debt in the summer. That's to rebuild its cash account after it ran it down in the run-up to the debt ceiling drama that we had in Washington a few months ago. Now, both of those things depress treasury prices by increasing supply and removing the Fed as a monthly buyer. And that means that the yield on Treasury bonds rises. And because the yield on Treasury bonds rises, it moves in the opposite direction to prices. That makes riskier assets like stocks relatively less attractive. It also means that more investors end up holding Treasury bonds than otherwise would. And that reduces their appetite to buy other riskier assets, even if their prices fall.
1: And does this then make a crash in risky assets more likely?
5: Well, On the face of it, yes, although that's certainly not what markets are betting on. So, the VIX, that's often called Wall Street's fear gauge, and it's a measure of expected stock price volatility, has this year actually fallen to its lowest level since before the COVID 19 pandemic. So, that shows that investors are actually expecting markets to be quite calm. That doesn't necessarily mean that they will be, though. So, One way to look at it is that volatility is actually low, not because stock markets aren't moving around very much, but because lots of stocks are moving in different directions at the same time. So those movements sort of cancel each other out. So it's not necessarily the case that volatility really is very low. It's more the case that different types of stocks are cancelling each other out. If they started to move in lockstep again, volatility could increase quite a lot.
1: So... On balance, Josh, does this all mean that a correction is inevitable eventually?
5: Well, that's always a really tricky question with any bubble. So the thing that we used to call the everything bubble actually lasted throughout the 2010s. It looked increasingly unsustainable, but then it just kept going until 2022. And now valuations on a lot of markets look pretty unsustainable again. One way of looking at that is taking what's called the earnings yield of the S&P 500 index of big American stocks. So this is the ratio of companies' earnings compared to the price of their stock. And it's a good sort of rough guide to what returns you can expect on the stock in the future. At the moment, that's about 5%. And actually, at the same time, the risk-free rate that the Federal Reserve is offering is also about 5% and probably set to go up. Now, that makes it look like stock prices are pretty unsustainable, because if you can get the same expected earnings on a risky equity as you can get on a risk-free rate from the Fed, why would you buy the riskier asset? It makes more sense to just take the risk-free route. So that's one reason to think that a correction could be inevitable, but timing it is virtually impossible. You can lose a lot of money waiting for markets to correct, even if it seems like that's what they're eventually going to do.
1: Josh, thank you so much for joining
5: us. Thanks for having me.
0: Someone's choice of cars says a lot about them.
1: Stanley Pignal writes the Charlemagne
0: column in The Economist. It's why the fictional and eccentric British character of Mr. Bean drives a Mini. Hello and James Bond speeds around in a sleek Aston Martin. James, you're incorrigible. Carists tell you a lot about the people that drive them, but also the countries that build them. For example, Europe's best-selling car last year was the tiny Peugeot 208. On the other hand, America's best-selling vehicle last year was the massive Ford F-150 truck. Placing the two of them together makes for quite the juxtaposition, The F-150 weighs over two tons, twice as much as the lithe Peugeot. And the driver in the American pickup truck sits a half meter higher than the tarmac-scraping Frenchman in his family compact. And forget the flatbed attached to the back of the Ford, its interior alone feels roomier than the entire Peugeot. When it comes to motoring, Europeans long felt that size did not matter. The continent was woven together by pokey cars with engines that would have shamed American lawnmowers. Yet what European autos lacked in cylinders, they made up for in a certain va va
2: Okay, which one has the va The rabbit, of
5: course. Hey, Bobby, what's the French for va
0: <laughs> These small cars became pop culture icons in Europe, instantly recognizable symbols of the countries that they came from. There was the Fiat 500 for Italy,
5: Io la Citroën
0: De chevaux in France.
5: Sans route, sans
0: risque,
2: sans fatigue,
0: la De chevaux Citroën. Germany's Volkswagen Beetle. Unabhängig im Urlaub <laughs> und genau richtig für unseren Geldbeutel. Einen Wagen nach unserem Herzen. Einen Volkswagen müsste man haben and even the drab Trabant's of East Germany. All these tiny cars became as core to the idea of what Europe stood for as new wave cinema, or lazily sipping an espresso at an outdoor cafe and watching the street life. But sadly, these industrial gems are heading to the scrap heap. Since the start of the century, cars sold in the EU have gained over 200 kilograms on average, a third of an original Fiat 500. They have grown taller, wider, and longer while legally carrying no more passengers. And sports utility vehicles, hunks of automotive manhood tailor-made for the American planes, increasingly rule cityscapes from Helsinki to Athens. Athens. But why was there such a difference across the Atlantic with cars in the first place? Europe's cramped cars were a feature of its history, geography, and economics. America was all too happy to remodel cities and suburbs to accommodate roomy Chevrolets. But Europe was stuck with its medieval streets and built its cars to fit its existing cities. Americans drive vast distances for work and leisure. Europeans do too, but sometimes settle for buses and bikes and trains instead. Then there were also the costs. Having to import the bulk of its petrol meant that European fuel duties were high, so wimpier engines were preferred. Perhaps most important, Europe embraced mass motoring in the lean decades after the Second World War. People craved the freedom personal motoring provided, and didn't mind if their heads stuck out the sunroof while they were afforded it. For decades, these pint-sized cars stayed the market leaders in Europe, but no longer. Sales as small cars in the EU have fallen by nearly half since 2011, even as those of SUVs are up threefold. And while the names of many of these famous tiny car models endure, such as the Fiat 500 or the Mini, today it is often as a bloated version. The original Mini, launched in 1959, was worthy of the name.
2: Here is the revolutionary Morris Mini Minor. See how easy the Morris Mini Minor is to park.
0: But the last iteration of the rebooted version, released in 2001, wastes twice as much and is over a quarter longer. The trend to larger vehicles seems odd at first. The streets of Florence, where Nice, are getting no wider, Bigger cars, by and large, pollute more. And yet Europe has grand ambitions to cut carbon emissions. Plus, European families are getting smaller. Italians had to squeeze an average of 2.3 sprogs in the back of the Fiat 500 when it came out in 1957. Now there are just 1.3 to accommodate. But then again, children used to be bundled wherever they would fit. These days, booster seats are compulsory but try latching down a toddler in the back row of a two-door car. But ultimately, fatter cars in Europe are a consequence of fatter wallets. People tend to buy as much car as they can afford. And it turns out that bigger is better is not just a mindset in America, but Europe as well. So the arc of automotive progress is long, but bends towards duller, bigger wheels. But I, for one, think that Europe should look in the rearview mirror and realize that it's losing a slice of its heritage, the very thing that made the continent what it is. Some of this is surely nostalgia. I remember growing up squabbling with my brother in the back of our family Mini as it navigated the streets of Paris. Later, shortly after my wedding, it was in a comically underpowered Peugeot 106 that my wife and I struggled up hills in Portugal while we explored the country during our honeymoon. These days, such journeys would take place aboard cookie-cutter SUVs. They'd be roomy, plush, and destined to be forgotten. But I, for one, think that, for all their flaws, those tiny cars had a certain je ne sais quoi, and it would be a shame if that were lost. After all, sometimes smaller really is better. Even if it means being uncomfortably cramped in the back of a mini (laughs) with your annoying brother.
1: Fiat, Peugeot and Citroën are part of Stellantis, whose largest shareholder owns a stake in The Economist's parent company. all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you're really missing out. Join us. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link, as always, is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.